Thank you, uh, Martin. I wonder if you'd like to uh, keep a uh, finger in that page. That would be very helpful to me. We're going to be looking at um, those words over the next few minutes. Shall we pray as we, uh, as we do so? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? Says God. Uh, Lord, we recognise that you are not silent. You are a speaking God. You have communicated with us, and you do communicate with us by your word and by your living word, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we come uh, to your word tonight, uh, you would speak again, uh, speak to each one of us, and help us to fear you, to honour you, and to call you our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder uh, whose opinion you value the most uh, if I were to ask you, who's the person whose opinion you most care about in the world? Uh, for some people, it's their spouse, isn't it? When I uh, sold men's suits, I was constantly amazed at how many men, uh, how many men made the decision based uh, almost entirely on their wife's opinion. Well, that was until I got married, anyway. Um, <laughs> consistently uh, amazed me. Or maybe it's your friends. Perhaps you're always thinking about what would your friends think of that? What would they do if they were in that uh, situation that you happen to have got yourself into? Maybe for some of us, uh, it's our boss. Maybe we're sitting there uh, in, in, our, uh, in our cubicle at work, and we're always thinking, what will she think? Uh, if I go the extra mile, perhaps she'll see something, and that might lead to promotion. I'll get noticed, I might get a bonus, and you never know, you never know what will happen if she can uh, spots it and, uh, and uh, rewards me. Uh, whoever it is, whatever the situation, uh, if we care about the opinion of another person, inevitably that will shape how we think and how we behave, won't it? If it's the right person, that can be really beneficial. It can direct our actions uh, for the good. Uh, but if we're looking in the wrong direction, if we're looking to try and impress somebody or we're caring about the opinion of somebody who actually really we shouldn't worry about, uh, that can really be quite unhelpful and quite dangerous. Think maybe of a teenager at a party. Uh, somebody offers him uh, a little tablet to take. Go on, everyone's taking these things. They'll do you no harm. There'll be lots of fun. That situation could potentially uh, be pretty dangerous, couldn't it? Or think of the worker, for example, who is put under pressure uh, by his boss just to kind of massage those sales figures, to make it look like the department's doing a little bit better than it should be. He knows he shouldn't, it's dishonest, but, well, if he cares about the boss's opinion of him, then what's to stop him uh, and uh, what's to hold him to say no? Uh, we are back in uh, the book of Isaiah with the prophets, uh, great prophet Isaiah. And once again, God's people are ignoring him and they're choosing to go uh, their own way. Uh, and in the midst of the chaos that has ensued, Isaiah confronts them with a startling choice. Whose opinion do they care about the most? And who are they going to follow? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be their own selfish, sinful ways? Uh, our passage uh, this evening falls into two natural sections, as you can see from the... Uh, NIV's headings. Let's uh, have a look at each one uh, in turn, shall we? Uh, and the first one I've called, so from uh, verses sort of uh, 6 through to 13, um, the prostitute's family. God promises fear for the fearless. Fear 
for the fearless. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had the great uh, joy of conducting the marriage of uh, Pete and Kate Webb here in Holy Trinity. Uh, and as I was preparing uh, my address, it struck me just how often the Bible uses the picture of marriage between a man and a woman as a picture of God's love for his people uh, and the commitments that he makes to them and uh, he calls uh, them to make to him. And once again, you have it uh, here in this passage. Uh, Unfortunately, the problem is that it's all too clear that far from being faithful to him, uh, God's people have rejected him and they've chosen uh, to follow their own path. Uh, There's a shocking description, isn't there? Uh, Look back with me at verse 3. We didn't have this read, but uh, we'll go from verse 3. This is what uh, Isaiah says of God's people. Come here, you sons of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Uh, They have gone far, far away from God. They are are flirting uh, like adulterers, essentially. People who are looking uh, for something outside of the marriage covenant that they have uh, with God. And not only are they being unfaithful to their, uh, their marriage vows, if you want to put it like that, uh, they're dabbling in witchcraft uh, and the occult. Uh, they are the family of the prostitute, says Isaiah, not the family of God, as they should be. Uh, on the surface, I think Isaiah identifies several issues um, in these words. Uh, lots to pick out, just one or two to, to think about. Uh, there's an openly scornful attitude towards God, isn't there? And, and, this, uh, and I guess towards the handful of faithful people uh, among God's people who are still sticking with God. Uh, verse 4, Isaiah says, Whom are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a breed of rebels, the offspring of liars? Uh, Isaiah compares them. It's a bit like little children who stick their tongue out at you. It'd almost be funny, wouldn't it, if it wasn't so tragic. This is God's people sticking their tongue out at him, rejecting his ways uh, and ignoring his rule. Um, Alongside that that blasphemy, they're mired in idol worship, aren't they? Verse uh, 5, you burn with lust among the oaks, and under every spreading tree you sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. Uh, They're participating in sex parties, in orgies, uh, very, very common for uh, pagan cults of this time, but something that God's people should have nothing to do with. Uh, Even worse, they have embraced a policy of child sacrifice. They have stooped so low that they are sacrificing their own children to pagan deities. Uh, A horrific picture of God's people. They've fallen. Uh, They've had a commitment to God, a covenant agreement with the Lord God himself who made them and, and called them as his people. And yet Isaiah says that uh, they are entering into pacts with evil political allies, verses 8 and 9. He says, you made a pact with those whose beds you love. You looked on their nakedness over the page. You went to Molech with olive oil, increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. It's all a reference to God's people trying to make political alliances with dubious allies in an effort to find security and peace. Uh, We've had this before, haven't we, in Isaiah? Uh, Back in, uh, I think it was chapter 7, chapter 8, God called his people to stay faithful to him. Don't put your trust in humans who will fail you. Put your trust in me. It's a grim picture, isn't it? Lots we could uh, pick up on and delve into. And yet behind it all, Isaiah is very clear that there is one big reason. Behind all of it, 
And it is in uh, verse 11. God says this, Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have been false to me and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? God's people have lost their fear of God. They don't care about honouring him. They don't care about obeying his word. Uh, Rather, they care far more about looking good in the eyes of their neighbours who worship pagan gods, who want them to be part of uh, dubious political alliances. Uh, They care more about those things than the Lord God. God says there's no justification for it. He hasn't been silent. He hasn't been inactive. It is their choice. They have chosen to reject him and ignore him, to live as though he's not there. They've lost their fear of God. Uh, I guess to us, um, to speak of fearing God seems rather negative, doesn't it? Um, uh, we are, uh, it's not the picture of God that we would like. I, I guess most of us, and I think I'd include myself in this, we, we rather want to see God as a bit like a sort of cuddly grandpa, don't we? He, he's very kind to us, and he just gives us what we want. He kind of indulges us uh, all the time with whatever uh, requests we want. And it's true that God is loving, he's good, Uh, he's kind to us, he's gracious, he gives us far more than we could ever uh, want or imagine. And yet repeatedly the Bible says that the people of God are called to fear him. Uh, That is essential. And not only is it essential, but it's actually also uh, beneficial. Uh, The writer of Proverbs in uh, chapter 9, verse 10, says that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. Uh, he goes on to write in uh, chapter 14 that it's a fountain of life. Uh, it turns a person from uh, the snares of death. To fear God is to acknowledge that he is perfect. He is just. And more than that, he is the rightful ruler of our lives. And when we do fear him, the Bible says, we will find that that is the supremely wise way And it is the way of blessing. It is a fountain of life springing up. It is perfect freedom, uh, far more than we could ever imagine. The story of the Bible is sadly that all of us have chosen the opposite. Uh, Each one of us has rejected his rule. Uh, We've turned to substitute counterfeit gods to provide the life uh, that we're looking for. We're much more interested in the opinions of others than we are of the opinion of God. And yet, just as God promises to Israel that there will be punishment for their rebellion and it will lead to destruction and ruin, verses 12 through to 13, so too to us does God promise that we face an eternity without him as the just punishment for our rebellion, for having told him to clear off. We don't want him to be the ruler of our lives. And one day he promises that everyone who has refused to fear God in this life will one day fear him when he returns in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead. Heavy stuff. Perhaps this is uh, news to some of us. Maybe it's news that there is a God who calls us to fear him. Who isn't just sitting out there Uh, blind and indifferent to us, but he calls, he demands us to worship him and to obey him.
he calls us to care about his opinion of us far more than we care about our boss, our friends, our family, maybe even our spouse. Maybe at some point we're conscious that we did fear God. We uh, came to him, we've trusted him, we have known that his way is supreme above all others. And yet over the years, we've almost domesticated him. He's a bit like uh, those people, a bit like those people who, uh, who try and uh, have uh, wild cats as pets. And they try and domesticate them, don't they? And turn them into a harmless tabby. And you can never quite get rid of that, uh, that wildness. God isn't wild, of course. He doesn't lose control. It's not like some cats who irrationally uh, lashes out. But we will never domesticate God. We can't force him into our box. God calls us to fear him, uh, to worship him, to call him our ruler in our lives. Uh, Isaiah reminds us that God is a God who calls us to give him the honour and the obedience that he's due. Uh, And one day there will be consequences uh, for those uh, who do not. That's the first section, uh, fear for the fearless. Let's move on, shall we, to uh, the second half of our passage from 14 through to uh, Uh, 21. Uh, And I've given this the heading of uh, God's household. Comfort for the contrite. Comfort for the contrite. We've had fear for the fearless. We now see comfort for the contrite. Uh, The picture that Isaiah's been painting is a pretty gloomy one, is it not? Uh, God's people have completely rejected him. They've turned away from his rule. They are facing uh, the rightful punishment uh, that uh, they are owed. And yet, amid the darkness, there is a wonderful glimmer of hope. God hasn't forgotten his people. Uh, Even if they have forgotten him, the family of the prostitutes can still become the household of the living God. How can this happen? Well, Isaiah uh, depicts for us uh, this picture of a road. You can see that, can't you, in verse 14. Uh, It says, And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. Oh, we've seen this picture of road before, I think, in Isaiah. You see it in chapter 40. Uh, Then it was uh, God coming to his people. That was a a sort of picture of the coming uh, Messiah. But here it is the other way around. It's a road that will lead God's people back to him, back from their sinful ways uh, to the God who longs uh, to dwell with them. Uh, The God who uh, Isaiah describes as high and lofty, verse 15. Uh, This God who lives in holiness above uh, his people, above the world, has come down to the level of the world to dwell with his people. Despite their sin, despite their rebellion, despite their rejection of him, God is longing to dwell with his people. Even more than that, Isaiah says, not only is he going to dwell with his people, but he will restore them. Uh, Lots of things we could pick out. Uh, Verse 16, he says that he will restrain his anger. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. Then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. God will restrain his holy anger at their sin, that anger that by all rights should uh, be vented against the sin of his people. He says in his mercy he'll hold it back because man cannot stand when God's anger is unleashed. Uh, He says that he will heal them. Uh, Verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him. Uh, God will uh, heal us from the sickness of our sin. 
uh, more than that, will guide us in the paths of righteousness, uh, restoration. Uh, To those who have spoken words of mockery and cursing, God will uh, transform them in order that they may uh, praise him. Verse 19, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. The wanderers become worshippers, if you want to put it uh, like that. The gods who his people have rejected uh, will work in the hearts of his people to draw them back to himself uh, and to restore them. Uh, All these blessings, I guess, are summed up in uh, one word, or two here, actually, from uh, Isaiah. He repeats the one word. Verse 19, peace. Peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. That peace that the world cannot grasp, that peace that comes from knowing that sins are forgiven, peace between God and man, and peace uh, with uh, one another. That special gift of God to his people. Peace to those far and near. For such a wonderful transformation to occur, something uh, dramatic has to happen, surely. Uh, Isaiah doesn't say much about it here, uh, but for those of us who've been uh, studying uh, Isaiah and reading it through uh, the last uh, few months, uh, we know that a few chapters back, uh, something wonderful happened that Isaiah described. Uh, And that towers over all the rest of this final section of Isaiah, all the way to the end. Uh, Turn with me to uh, chapter 53, uh, will you? This wonderful chapter right at the heart um, of uh, Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah pictures uh, this servant, the suffering servant, uh, who will come to uh, achieve forgiveness uh, for God's people. Uh, The way for God's rebellious people to be reconciled to him, is for God's Son, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, to die for them. Uh, We are in uh, chapter 53, uh, verse 5. This is Isaiah's description of his work. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, pierced for our transgressions, for the sin of God's people. Uh, The punishment that brought us peace, that link, peace again, that peace flows from the work of the servant, the Lord Jesus, on the cross. It was God's punishment, God's just punishment on the Lord Jesus at Calvary that brought us peace. By his wounds are we healed. Only through the work of the servant, dying in our place, bearing our sin on his shoulders, can God's people be reconciled to a holy God and find that forgiveness and the healing they so desperately, desperately need. Uh, Nothing else will do. The writer of the Hebrews says that uh, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. It had to be this way. It had to be uh, the root of the cross. And through the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus, the stain of rebellion can be wiped away and the fountain of healing and life flow out to God's people. If you've been uh, following the news, you've probably seen the uh, rising concern over the Ebola virus in uh, West Africa. 
it has dreadful, terrible effects uh, for those who contract it. Um, it seems like death is almost a, a certainty. Uh, scientists are racing against time to try and find some kind of cure for it and to work out how they can prevent it spreading. Uh, some of these have been more successful uh, than others, I gather. Uh, tragically, it seems that many are dying unnecessarily because they are refusing to heed the vi- advice of, uh, of the medical professionals. Uh, they are saying they, they don't want their help, they don't trust them, and they're preferring to trust in their own remedies, their own um, solutions uh, to the problem. Uh, Isaiah has revealed in these, this chapter how at the heart of man lies a sickness that is so deadly as to make a bowl look like chicken pox. It is the sickness of sin. Uh, humanity's decision to turn its back on God, uh, to refuse to give him the place of rule that he deserves in our lives. Uh, and the outcome is death, God's fair punishment, uh, separation from him both in this life and in eternity. And yet wonderfully, through the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, in our place, God in his grace has provided a cure. The cure for the sin virus, the sin sickness. The promise of mercy, of healing, of restoration. And I guess the question facing each one of us this evening is the same question that faces uh, Isaiah's people here. uh, And in our illustration, the people uh, in West Africa. Uh, Will we accept the medicine... Or will we keep trusting in our own cures, our own solutions to the problem? Uh, God promises that if we come to him uh, in recognition of our desperate need, if we come to him for forgiveness, if we ask him uh, to make us well, uh, he says that that can be possible. He can make us well. We can be revived. We can be restored. The promise of uh, chapter 57. We can know that peace, that peace of sin forgiven, being reconciled uh, with God. We can be friends with him again. We can't earn that healing. There's nothing we can do to work it up and uh, to achieve it for ourselves. It is only the free gift of God alone. Only he can offer that. Only he can uh, sort out the situation. And, And unless we turn to him, unless we turn to him in sorrow for our sin, if we turn to him and ask him for his forgiveness, we will remain dead in sin, stricken and afflicted, doomed to a life that is separated from him, uh, facing his righteous anger. That's the choice, the choice that faced God's people for Isaiah, Isaiah's day. It faces us again here tonight. It faces all of us. Will we accept God's offer of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus? Or will we continue to seek the cure in these tempting alternatives, these things that promise much, they promise us that we, they will make us well, and yet they will always fail. Uh, let me encourage you. Come to him tonight. Perhaps it's for the first time. Maybe you're conscious that one time you did and you have gone away from him. Come to him again. He promises uh, forgiveness. Jesus himself said it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. He has come not for the righteous but for the sinners uh, who need repentance. Uh, come to him. Know his comfort. Know his forgiveness. And know his healing. That comfort for the people who are contrite, who know their need, and who come for him in forgiveness. There was a uh, famous Puritan uh, 
theologian called William Gurnall, who was, uh, I think he ministered in Suffolk somewhere, but I'm not sure. Uh, but he said uh, that uh, we fear other men so much, or other people, because we fear God so little. We fear other people so much because we fear God so little. That really gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? It was the problem for Isaiah's people. Uh, they feared others. They feared the opinion of their neighbours. They feared the opinion of the, uh, the cultic uh, priests far more than they feared God. Uh, if we allow others to take that place in our hearts and lives that only God should have, uh, we are embracing a path of rebellion and death. And yet, wonderfully, Isaiah promises for his people and for us that when we turn back to God, we ask for his forgiveness, we come to him, uh, he promises the hope of a new start, a path of peace and life. Uh, Let's be sure that we take him up on his offer and we follow the right path, the narrow path, the path uh, through the cross to peace and health and forgiveness. Shall we pray? Lord, we acknowledge that each of us has indeed turned to our own way. And we would much rather try and find a cure for ourselves than come uh, to you. And yet we thank you so much that in the Lord Jesus you have made a cure for our sin sickness. You promise that when we come to you, we ask for your forgiveness. You cleanse us from every stain. And more than that, you give us a fresh start. You renew us, you restore us. And we pray for any of us here this evening to whom this is new. Uh, you would be revealing yourself uh, to them. And perhaps for those of us who, this is, this is old news, but uh, we are conscious that our hearts have grown cold, we have drifted away from you. Uh, draw us back to yourself as you drew back your uh, rebellious people in the days of Isaiah. Help us, we pray, to fear you, uh, to call you our Lord, and to call you our Master. Amen. <laughs>